0: Most people are using the term the new normal as either a past state or I can't wait till things get back to normal. The second way people are using it is, well, I guess this is just our new normal. Like, I'm going to settle for where I'm at right now. And I think both of those need to be challenged. Uh, So the way I use it is new is no prior point of reference. So if that's the case and something is absolutely new, what are the tools I now need in the in this new environment to actually accelerate? And then normal is the everyday typical occurrence of a thought or an action. So what am I thinking about? What have I trained my mind to see and how to respond in traumatic situations? That needs to be my normal and that can always elevate.
1: Welcome to another episode of Success Through Failure. This is your host, Jim Harsho, Jr., and today I bring you John Register. Do you get motivation, clarity, or inspiration from the Success Through Failure podcast? Then don't be so selfish. Share the motivation with your friends. Go to Jimharsha slash share, and there you'll find a simple page with just three buttons. One to share the podcast on Twitter, one for Facebook, and one for LinkedIn. Click any of the buttons and you'll have the option to either share the pre-written tweet or message or rewrite your own. That's it. Super simple. It'll just take a few seconds unless you're selfish and you want to keep all of this awesome inspiration to yourself. Go ahead and let your friends in on the secret. They'll thank you. And if nothing else, you'll have something cool to talk about the next time you get together. Just go to jimharshawjr.com slash share. John is a two-time Paralympian. He's a Paralympic Games silver medalist. He's also a Persian Gulf War combat veteran, and he's an author and motivational speaker. We've been using the term new normal a lot lately over the past year, over the pandemic, but John really did have to embrace a new normal for himself. After becoming an amputee, following a misstep, literally a missed step, over a hurdle while training for the 1996 olympic games talk about a pivot in your life talk about dealing with a new normal talking about dealing with change this guy went from an olympic hopeful who was had a legitimate shot i mean he was one of the guys who was sort of predicted to make the olympic team and and to get to live out his dream of being an olympian and, and taking a shot at the olympic gold medal to being in the hospital and seven days later having to make the decision whether or not he wanted to have his leg amputated or not. He knew his Olympic career was over at that point. And um he shares with us that story, the deep dark times, going through that and the challenge of dealing with that, and then coming out the other side and deciding to become a Paralympian and becoming a world-class Olympic athlete, Paralympic athlete. Um he is now, like I said, a motivational speaker. He's written a book titled 10 Stories to Impact Any Leader. Journal your way to leadership success. John and I have an absolutely incredible conversation. Let's dive right into my interview with John Register. Let's just dive in, man. Like so you're, you know, you're a four-time All-American, University of Arkansas, at track athlete. You you've competed in in multiple Olympic trials, and at least one media outlet, if not more, picked you to be the guy who's going to make the Olympic team this year. And then you have the accident. Take us to that time.
0: Yeah. You know, well, thanks again for having me on the show. You know, life can change with one wrong step and life can get back on track with one right step as well. But on May 17th, 1994, I was, as you said, one of the world's fastest hurdlers. I was top eight in the country, top 20 in the world. I was also a combat army veteran on my way to officer candidate school. And it was just great. I was—I mean, the the track was just ready. I was just, you know, I had my whole career just ahead of me. And I thought that if I do 20 years in the military, I can get out. I can work another job, like as a civilian, and do another 20 years in the same job. I was just working as I was in the military and then travel the world. <laughs> but at uh, on May seventeenth, nineteen 1994, at 530 in the afternoon, I misstepped a hurdle in the 400-meter hurdles. Landed awkwardly, dislocated my left knee, severed the artery behind my kneecap, and seven days later had the choice to make either keep my leg and use a walker or a wheelchair for the rest of my life or undergo an amputation and use a prosthesis for the rest of my life. You know, you know what kind of choice is that?
1: So you literally, it was, it was taking this misstep, and, and I've watched your TEDx talk. You talk about you had everything mapped out. Like you, you're just like your life was mapped out. You had. Every step between the hurdles, 21 steps to this hurdle, 13 steps to that hurdle. Right. And, and something was a bit off and you made an adjustment and and that's when the tragedy happened, right?
0: Yeah. So the wind was really blowing hard and I was in Hayes, Kansas that day and I just got off the bus and, you know, athletes, we just do our normal shakeout, you know, we have long bus ride. Let's get the, you know, get the legs moving again. Let's get the heart pumping a little bit for a race. You know, we have the next day I had the next day. And so I just set up the first three hurdles And a great 400 meter hurdler will always have a step pattern for the the race to kind of just get your steps ready. I'm a right leg, primarily right leg dominant hurdler. However, I can take the hurdle with my left leg and and I'm ambidextrous too, but I I prefer to take the hurdle with my right leg because that was my high hurdle leg. And I'm approaching every hurdle coming into these hurdles at about 8.7 meters per second, which is uh, about 19 and a half miles an hour. So I get 21 steps out of the blocks to 45 meters into the first hurdle, and then the next three hurdles I'm taking at, you know, the right leg leading at 13 steps all the way down the back stretch. So I'm practicing those first three, which will give me the step pattern of 21, 13, 13. And on this day, with the wind blowing, my step pattern was off. So I was getting 21 steps, right leg leads, and 22 steps, left leg leads, the first hurdle. Then I'm getting 13 steps, right leg lead, 14 steps, left leg leads, to the second hurdle. And then third hurdle as well. So, you know, sometimes in hurdles, as in life, we just want things to stay the same. And with this, it wasn't. I wanted to make sure, because I just run a, a really fast time the week before, and I wanted to improve upon that time, which USA Track and Field News, after they saw that time, started saying, hey, this guy's one to watch for the 1996 Olympic Games. And so as I started out on the blocks, you know, kind of my last proverbial pass, I went over hurdle number one in 21 steps, right leg. 13 steps for hurdle number 2 right leg then the wind pushed me back on hurdle number 3 and I'd have to jump off my left leg um, off my right leg and go across the hurdle with my left leg you know I've done it thousands of times before nothing new but when I hit the ground the the leg just buckled uh hyperextended and that's when I hit the ground so we see things that happen in our lives that instantly will change instantly will shift us Uh, We might look at it in today's terminologies of COVID, right? I say everybody that went through COVID last year and through this year went through an amputation. It was literally, the the world stopped uh, and we didn't have control over it any longer. We thought what we had control over, we no longer did. We said things like, these are now uncertain times. And my challenge back to individuals and the, the groups I speak with are, when do we ever have certainty? We never really had it. We had rituals. We had we had we had rhythms that we put in place that elevated us to a rise and create a result. But we never knew what was going to happen the next day. We never knew what happens in the, in the future. Anything can change, and are we prepared for that? So when I had that injury on that day and in the hospital and the doctors there giving me this choice, I really wanted to get rid of the pain. Right? It was it was the pain was so great that if I thought if I could just get rid of the leg, I'll get rid of this pain. But when I talked to Dr. Mullins and I said, you know, just take it off, it was really because that's what my male deductive reasoning had said. But when I woke up, I was in more pain than my male deductive reasoning had, had actually reasoned. And that's kind of the whole kind of injury process of what I think we all go through, this point of recognition that something will not be the same any longer. And of course, doing an amputation, that's a permanent choice. It's I'm not going to go back ever, I'm not going to run hurdles. Again, I will not run in the Olympic Games. That is a permanent choice. Even if I could you know, get back up on two limbs, I'm not going to run in the Olympic Games with, with an artificial leg.
1: So then what? You make this decision and the amputation happens. Yeah. And this, this identity that you had, you're, you know, I mean, as a fellow All-American athlete, like I, I know the identity that that carries as an Olympic hopeful who trained at the Olympic training center. Like, like I know that, that you carry this identity with you and you physically had this taken away from you. How do you deal with that? Let's talk about like the immediate moment, like, you know, while you're still in the hospital and then, and then as you recover.
0: You know, Jim, we have all these fears that begin to come into our mind And immediately what I was thinking about, because I woke up at like eleven o'clock at night. There was no one around me. The nurses and doctors thought I was going to sleep the night with the medication I was on. And I woke up. So they had sent my wife back to the hotel, my wife Alice. My eyes open up. I look down at the bed sheets and I see the imprint of my right leg. But when I look down for the left leg, there's no impression there. There's no there's no leg. And I was in tremendous pain and I wanted something just to knock it out. So I reached over for a morphine drip button and I was too weak to roll over to depress the button. I saw the nurse's station, all of the scratchiness in my throat made the sound really too inaudible to get their attention. So I, I lay in that bed there for the next eight hours with my dangerous thoughts. I mean, who am I now? What is my identity? will my wife still stay with me? Will my son still see me as his dad? Will I still have a job in the military? Can I support my family? I mean, my Olympic dreams are gone, they're over. And I think those are the fears that we begin to have. And it starts with each of us as individuals. Uh, We all have these, not necessarily the woe is me, but what's going to happen to me now? And it's a very sobering moment of the things that we thought we were in control of that we no longer are in control of so when i talk about the fears you know i of alice maybe leaving me that came from a place of being a combat veteran uh, or coming back from operation desert shield desert storm and seeing many of the service members that came back their families broke apart because the change was too great for the spouse who was back home to Go through that time. We don't. We always, you know, thank people for their service when they go off to service, but we don't look at the aftermath that comes when that person comes back home because they are changed. No one goes into the theater and comes back the same way. And so, because that person is so different, that spouse is saying, "Can I actually deal with this?" And sometimes we we question ourselves. You know, we have the marriage or whatever, and then we say, uh, "We want the for better, but not the for worse." You know, we want the health, but not the sickness it's a challenge for young couples that are together in in military service. And that was what was in my head when I was thinking Alice was going to leave. But as I dug deeper into it, it was really about myself and my own ego. It was about, um, not her leaving. It was, are you still desirable? Does your wife still want you because you're now an amputee that you're now disfigured that you're now have a disability, Will she still desire you in that capacity? Will you still have value to people? That was more about me than anybody else. And I think we often will cast that onto other people in that fear standpoint so that we can deflect it, the pain, the psychological pain that comes on us. And that's a hard thing to do is to look at ourselves first. And I think there were other people that were around me, right? Other people who were believing for me what I could or could not do, which was based upon what they believed they could or could not do if they were in my situation. So I have a great network of support of my family first, but then the, the, the military, I mean, they really wrapped their arms around me because they were saying you know, I could get up and do whatever I wanted to. However, there were some, some of my team members, not a lot, but a couple that were on the other side of the equation. Some couldn't call me. Because they didn't want to see themselves in my situation or see themselves in my situation, because their life was ahead of them. You know, athletes. So we know the a career ending injury is not something we want to think about, because it gets gets us off our off of our edge. And so there were some people saying that, yeah, I don't know if you should have run those hurdles that day, you know, and shake out. Well, that was a routine I did. That's how I prepared myself. That's how I got myself to, you know, for all American honors. That's how I. I wound up going to two Olympic trials and training for my third was because I stuck to a routine and tried to elevate that routine that I did. And we can all do that. And a misstep on the routine, I can deal with. But if I did something out of the ordinary, maybe I would have questioned, questioned it. And I think the third thing, you know, Jim, is, is society. Society will dictate to us sometimes what we believe is possible as well. Now I'm this person with a disability. I'm an amputee. And I'm thinking about all these negative thoughts in my head about my wife or my son or will I have a job? Where do those thoughts come from? Maybe it came from when I watch a Walt Disney movie. I see Peter Pan in uh, the movie Peter Pan. And we got Captain Hook in the movie. He's, the, he's an amputee, has his arm bit up by TikTok the crocodile. And we see in movies all these you know negative stereotypes and images of people with disabilities disfigured. They're meant there to scare us. He's dark. He's mysterious. And Captain Hook, I want to get away from him. He's scaring the Lost Boys in, in the movie Peter Pan. But wait a minute! I'm now an amputee. Am I associating myself with Captain Hook? Is that why people are afraid of me? And parents tell their children when they see me walking down the aisle of a grocery store, "Let's go down a different aisle. Let's not. Let's not. You know, let's not bother this man when the kids pulling on mom's skirt or dad, dad's pants or dad's coat, right? saying that, mommy, look at that guy's leg, look at that man's leg over there. Oh, we want to go a different way. That's not what we want to talk about right now. And so we begin to forecast onto other people and then into our children, into our social settings, what we value. And we say, that's not valuable for me. And we see it in everything, not just disability. We see race relations. We see the political elections. All these things are going on that I have so much fear about it because somebody else told me to have this fear. And yet I haven't looked at the fear from my own lens. And I'll I'll live there because I, I don't live courageous enough to actually make a decision, my own decision. I make a decision from other people that have told me, the barbershop, the beauty shop, what news source I listen to my news from. They dictate what my thoughts are because I'm too lazy to figure it out for myself. So I'll just cast it on other people. That's where I was. I was in that moment. I was in that moment of trying to understand it and figure it out. And I was coming up against some ideals that weren't there before or were, were subsurfaced. What did I think about people with disabilities? Was I the person that would have taken my child down a different aisle if I hadn't been a person with disability? Would that been the social norm for me to do? Probably, unless I would have had come into the, into contact with it. So I think that's really where we show up when fear hits us, when some type of trauma hits our, hits our lives.
1: There's so many directions that we can go from there, John. I mean, this is deep work. And for the listener, I want you to really like hear from your heart what John's talking about here. Cause I want to go deeper into this. Absolutely. You know, you talk about people project what's possible on us, right? And we're surrounded, like we grow up in this world where there are certain projections upon us again whether it's race whether whether it's disability whether it's just possibility in my life based on the degree that I have or the prior success that I have had or have not had based on an injury that I just had like how do you override all of that because here you are you have an amazing career and potential laid out the whole plan is there i mean this is it's all mapped out for you and then this happens, Yeah. how do you, like, how do you override that? Like when you're laying in the hospital, when you, as you're recovering, because I know 22 months later, you're not having a pity party for yourself. You're a Paralympian. Like, how do you override all of this?
0: You know, Jim, I think it's fascinating that we, we can override these things, right? So, I really didn't even know what the Paralympic Games were, (laughs) you know, and oftentimes that's too much of a jump anyway to go from hospital bed to Paralympic Games uh, with this great World Championships, you know, that that we have this the parallel games, the Olympic games. For me, it was really my wife Alice that started the whole process for me because in that downward spiral that I was in, I trying to understand my own identity. I'm wheeled out to a playground, uh, inaccessible playground. And I'm forced in my wheelchair to watch my wife and my son play on the swing set. And I couldn't push myself out of my, that chair. And it was really the first time I felt devalued, dejected, and disabled. And my wife saw me struggling. And you know as I'm crying, there, just kind of bawling. She comes running over and she says, what is going on? And I articulated to her all the fears I had the night before. And then she said the words that really stopped my downward spiral. She said, you know what, John? We're, we're going to get through this together. This is just our new normal. It's just our new normal. And it was really with this new normal mindset that I began to elevate. And that's kind of what I have framed everything, what I talk about now. And the new normal, I have to kind of define it for everybody because people are probably sick of the term the new normal in the last, <laughs> in the last year here. But I've been using it for like over 20 years now. And the, and the reason why I continue to use it is because I equate it with the Olympic model of Sidious Altius Fortius, or when translated into English, Swifter, Higher, Stronger. You see, most people are using the term the new normal right now as either a past state or past tense of the word, or I can't wait till things get back to normal. That's one way we use it. The second way people are using it is, well, I guess this is just our new normal. Like, I'm going to settle for where I'm at right now. And I think both of those need to be challenged. Uh, So the way I use it is, new is no prior point of reference. So if that's the case, and something is absolutely new, what are the tools I now need in the in this new environment to actually accelerate? And then normal is the everyday typical occurrence of a thought or an action. So what am I thinking about? What have I trained my mind to see and how to respond in traumatic situations? That needs to be my normal, and that can always elevate. And then the action is the rituals that we put in place. And what am I going to do? What's the actionable step I will take every time I have a new normal existence? And going back to the model of Sidious Altius Fortius, the Olympic model swifter, higher, stronger, you notice that those words aren't written in the superlative of the word. It's not swiftest, highest, or strongest. But they're written with this ER stem ending that we can be the swiftest today and be swifter tomorrow. We can jump the highest today, jump higher tomorrow. So there's always this ER stem ending that lets us know that the ceiling can become the floor and we can elevate and spring off of that new floor that we have. And that's the new normal for me. It's never a destination. It's only a plateau by which we grow. So understanding that context, I began by trying to understand who I am in this new identity. Because I realized had I overcome the amputation of my left leg, I'd have my leg back. I don't. I don't get back the things I think I'm going to get back and this is the foundation that's a false foundation which we usually call i just need to rebuild my life well if i'm rebuilding on two good legs that foundation is no longer there so i'm building on a cracked foundation if i'm trying to build my life back pre covid well covid's happened so i can't go back to that lifestyle i have to be doing something that is new if i have now awakened to racial reckoning in, in the united states I can't go back and unsee what I just saw. I can't ungo- go back and unsee George Floyd being murdered. I can't unsee that. So I have to now live in a moment of truth. And that truth is outside of any of the other people that have been sharing with me, you know, my my circle. It's outside of my family. It's and it's definitely outside the social norms. And if I can really be in that moment and honor that truth that I'm now discovering. I will choose or can choose to make a courageous act, a courageous step. When my truth outweighs my fear, I will commit to the courageous act. I'll commit to a courageous life. When truth outweighs fear, I'll commit to the courageous life. So in that hospital bed, my truth was I don't have a leg, but I have this one good leg left and I'm really weak right now. So what's my first thing I need to do? I'm gonna stand up on my good leg for 15 seconds and see if I can make it. And I get to 10 and my legs start shaking and I sit back down. I wait another half an hour. I get back up. I make it to 13 seconds. I sit back down. Third time, I make it to 20 seconds. I sit back down, set a new goal, ER stem ending. I'm going to push a little bit more the next time. Let's make it to a minute, 45 seconds, 50 seconds, one minute, five, sit back down. So that's the incremental steps that we need to have after we have kind of committed to the jump we need to make. Because a jump really is a jump. In the moment after I have identified, like I said, the, the rebuilding process, and I realized that I'm not getting back what I think I'm, I was going to get back, I'm now having to redefine who I am. And I may get a glimpse of a vision of what is now possible. And that's when I started you know, getting up on that good foot. But I had to make the decision to, to jump. 'Cause like I said, the jump is the jump. It's your jump. Well, for the audience members that are out there listening right now, no one can do it for you. I don't care if you read five hundred books on motivational or inspirational stuff. It's only you can do it. Only you can make the jumps that you need to make in life. In fact, I was at a I was at an amputee camp <laughs> later on. All these little tykes running around me, some, you know, double leg amputees, single leg amputees, some triple with arms and, and legs and these little guys and gals from you know, maybe eight, nine years of age to, you know, 16 to 18 years of age. And we're all on a ropes course, 50 feet off the ground. And the kids are just having a, it's like a jungle gym to them. They're just flying across this ropes course. And so for me, I'm having fun too, until I get to these five swinging discs and I'm harnessed in 50 feet off the ground. And I have to kind of go and make my way across these swinging discs. And the first one is easy, right? I can just step off the platform onto the disc. That's easy. Second one's pretty easy too, but it's a little bit further, but I can hold onto the rope thing and I can get across it. The... Third one, I got to make a jump. I'm 50 feet off the ground. I got to make the jump. There's no way I can make the step because if I, if I step, the disc is going to swing out from behind me and I'll never be able to get to the, no- the other side. So you have to commit to the jump. I was up there for 20 minutes, Jim. <laughs> Everybody was encouraging me. All these little snot-nosed little kids are down the bottom of the pit saying, You can do it, Mr. Register. You got it, Mr. Register. Come on, you can do it. <laughs> no fear. <laughs> right. And there's this that fear's there. The fear's there. But I'm harnessed in. So why was I afraid to jump? Even if I missed, I was I was caught on boulet, right? Again, it wasn't the fear of, of missing the jump, it was the fear of how I was gonna look to everybody else. So the fear is not generally what we is right in front of us. The fear generally comes back to our ego. It comes back to how we're going to look to somebody. How will my friends see me if I know that this thing is wrong, but they're saying it's right? What will my friends think about me? And we begin the whole dance, right? And I won't live courageous if I think my friends or if society will see me differently. And if I can't handle that, if I'm not strong enough, if I don't have the courage, if I don't lack courage, if I'm living in fear, I'll never make that jump. It took me 20 minutes to make that jump. But I got to the other side, I got down, I made the rest of the ropes course and everybody congratulated me and everything, but I wasn't going back up there again. (laughs) I had made it to the other side, but only I could do it. None of their encouragement could get me across. I mean, it was encouraging, but I had to make it. And I think that's the one thing, I, i if I can harp on anything, you have to have the courage to make the jump. And when your truth outweighs your fear, you will do it. You're more likely to do it when that happens. So I think it's not a rebuild at all. I believe it's a rebirth. Our mind has to be reborn into now what is possible. And once you make that jump, it's not easy. We think it's easy. We think it's gravy train on the other side, but it's not. The jump is only the beginning. Now the work begins. Now that I've been awakened to whatever I need to be awakened to, I have to start learning and understanding or unlearning what I may have learned before, but I'm committed to the path now. And I'm gonna get some phantom pains, I realize that. Phantom pains are pains that will happen in a person's limb that's no longer there. It's all in the mind, they say, but it's a real thing, I'll guarantee you that, right? But it reminds you of a past experience. It reminds you of trying to get you back into a past lane, into your past fears, but you're not there anymore because you've crossed that chasm. And now you have to look forward and begin this hard climb to the the elevation of the mountaintop or however you wanna say it. And for me, it began with those
1: 15 seconds of getting out of that bed. Quick interruption. Hey, if you like what you're hearing, be sure to get the notes, quotes, and links in the action plan from this episode. Just go to jimharshawjr.com slash action. That's com slash action to get your free copy of the action plan. Now, back to the show. You mentioned about you've got to know your truth. Like, what is your truth? What if your truth is. Okay, I, I just applied for the promotion and somebody else got it and I didn't get it. Therefore, my truth is I'm not good enough. I'm not capable enough. I'm not smart enough. Versus, what, like what you were saying, like your truth was it for you was what is possible, right? But I think so many people are wired to think what is not possible, right? The truth, the truth could be, well, my my spouse just left me. Therefore, you know. Uh, my life's going to be terrible or, or I'm a bad person or, or whatever that might, you know, those thoughts might lead to. Yeah. What about people who say, well, that is my truth? I mean, maybe they're just looking at it the wrong way.
0: I, I challenge that. And, and here's why I challenge it. Because the truth that you're saying right there is a story you're making up about the experience. And so the only way you can get to the actual understanding of it is to go ask the question, right? Go ask the individual, okay, I didn't get this promotion what can I do? What, what held me back in this moment? And now we get what that other person was thinking rather than our story we're making up about the situation, that I'm not valuable, that I'm not capable. Because it's probably not that because you're in the job. They hired you for a reason to help the company. So if you didn't get the promotion, maybe somebody else had something else that you didn't have in that particular moment. So go find it out. Ask them the question. It's like we talk about performance reviews at the end of the year. We're thinking we're doing a great job the entire year and we get to the performance review, we just get the three block, right, (laughs) instead of the, the five block. And the reason for that is because we're telling ourselves a story that I'm doing good, but the other person that's evaluating us may not see the same thing that we're seeing. So it's important to be checking in, not just at the performance review time, but rather the entire time. Maybe every couple of weeks, hey, what do we got going on today, Jim? You know, I want to make sure that we're, we're dialed in. Are the projects coming in on time? You know, what can I do better? Are you seeing anything that i'm I'm missing here? And so all along the the time we're developing a relationship so that at the end there are no surprises because we know that we're hitting the marks all along the way. The challenge comes when that truth is violated with misinformation or alternative motivations right? When truth is violated, now we have a trust issue that's going on. So I remember I did with the one company I was working with, they have all the blocks, you know, one block is means you're doing poor, five block, you're doing great. It's something that you've done for the organization that just knocked it out of the park. That's your five block. And so, and most people kind of land on the, on the bell curve all, around the threes, right? So that's what most people do. It can be a low three or a high three, you know, three plus, three minus, whatever. But I found over <laughs> the, the, like, 12 to 15 years I was working for the organization that I was always getting threes, one time got a four, and at one point, and it wasn't the time that I got the organization 15 million bucks off of (laughs) of a program, which was more than anybody else had ever given them, and I still wound up that year with a three block, right? So now there's a trust issue that's going on. So you're not really telling me my performance is valuable, right? If you're saying that this is the level and I've exceeded that level, then you you should just honor that. But now you're, give, now you're giving now you give me another excuse. Oh, we don't have the funding. We don't have all of this. But but I know you know people talk that other people got something for less work. So now we have a trust issue with inside that. So what we're now now I'm telling myself other stories, but still I have to be the one be courageous enough to go back into the supervisor and say, well, why not? You know, instead of me making the story up and then spinning things out of control, and then we get into a, a loop of. Um, I think it's it's uh, the Arbinger Institute calls it a collusion, right? So I see you do something, so I'd have this reaction, you see this reaction, and then you do something, and we get more of the same that goes around. We go around in this big dance in a circle because we don't stop the collusion. You know, it just gets bigger and bigger and the war starts, and I get my allies together. you get your allies together, and we have we, we've got a big brawl that's about to about to ensue.
1: So for the listeners I want to, I want you to get this like it's about the questions that you ask are you willing to ask yourself the questions about the truth are you willing to ask others about the truth like are you or maybe maybe that's where the fear starts with some people too is like are you willing to ask that question and and handle the truth right i mean everybody knows the quote i'm going to say right now is you can't handle the truth but like can you handle the truth like can you accept that and can you actually look at Maybe the other side, because we beat ourselves up, right? So maybe, you know, you didn't get that promotion using that instance, you know, what is now possible because of that? I've got actually got a client who, who didn't get a promotion recently. And um, here we are like a month, a month and a half later, two months later. And it's like, holy cow, like there's more possibility because of that, not despite that. So make sure you're keeping perspective. But another thing you said, John, is, is it's that fear, right? The fear of taking the jump and nobody else can do it for you. No one's come to save you. No one's come to give you permission. You've got to do it yourself. How can you help somebody make that jump? Because the listener is sitting there going, okay, I get it. Like I have to make that jump. And they're saying, I don't know if it's the right jump. Do I change careers? Do I break up with my spouse or significant others? Do I commit to running that marathon? Like, there's that fear: Is this the right thing? Is it safe? Is it safe for me to do this? Or, you know, if I make that jump, then what? Right? It's still, like you said, it's still going to be hard. Like, how do you get from that point where you use, you know, that, that example when you're trying to jump from one desk to the next? How do you get to that critical point where you actually take the jump? Any thoughts or insights into how we? Get there do we to the point where we can actually leave the platform and make that jump?
0: The answer is yes. I will go back to saying the jump is your jump. You can make the landing easier for somebody, right? So you're supporting them. You've been supporting them throughout their career, their journey, if that's you know on their career path, maybe you're the coach, maybe you are the mentor, uh, maybe you are the the executive, you know leadership that's you know trying to give them the pathway. When they do have to make the jump, the jump becomes a shorter jump. Instead of falling 100 feet, you're going to fall 10 feet, right? You can make it closer for them to see the right move. I remember when I was um, about to go off as a full-time professional speaker and leave the corporate America, you know, era. It's like, oh my gosh, is can I really do this? And you got these fears in the back of your mind, but they're just stories that you're telling yourself. I believe it in my in my case, maybe it's because of the athletics or. Or, you know, I also play music and stuff. But once you're you kind of committed to that thought that this is the next thing, the longer you stay thinking about it, the more doubts you're going to have about it. And so you got to just, when when it's ready to go, like you're on the the high dive board, the longer you're looking down at that water, (laughs) the more the line's building up behind you. You just got to jump, right? You don't know what's going to happen. It's your first time off the high dive. Of course, because why? That's a futuristic state. We don't know. And, we, and like I said earlier in the show, uncertainty is life. We'd never know what's going to happen next. We never know what surety is in anything that we do because we can't see into the future. So therefore, what can I control? I can control the stories I tell myself. So the story on the high dive board is the water's going to be fine. I'm going to hit it. I'm going to swim off to the the uh, the side, just like all of the 10 other people I saw before me. I am just going to mimic what I saw and just go. And so I think it's the same thing, whether it's a relationship, you know if you had that thought in the first place that something is amiss or you wanna, you wanna make it work, right? So we'll take the relationship. I wanna get out of it, boom. You know, then you're gonna just make the jump. Well, what if I, Then so the what ifs begin starting down this road of if I, if I make the decision, what are the consequences of it? And we begin to put ourselves, but we don't say the story like you said earlier, Jim, is the positive. What if I stay? What are the positive things that will happen if I, if we keep the relationship going and will those positive things outweigh the negative things? And I think that's where we, we get into this kind of yin and yang. We start playing these different scenarios out, but if you think about it too long, we get on the hamster wheel, we get into paralysis because we don't make the choice. We don't make the actual action step to making the commitment. So going back to my leaving, you know, the organization was, I was going to leave in February of that year. And the the organization actually let me go in January of that year, so what did that do for me? It gave me my bonus, it gave me my severance package, uh, it gave me you know some other resources I needed. Plus, I had seven or eight engagements, speaking engagements on the books, so that filled my entire year that I could actually now have a softer landing pad. Even though I did have to make the jump, I was going to make it anyway, right? But that gave me a closer jump to make, and it's it, it's kind of fearful. But I knew that morning when it was going to happen. I told my wife about it and we were okay with it because I prepared for five years because I knew that it, was, it wasn't going to last and we we're going in two different directions. And I think that's it, right? If you are misaligned at work and you're having to force yourself to be there, it's time to make a change.
1: John, you've led the life of a world-class athlete and and then you deal with the adversity uh, that you had to deal with and and, and then you become world-class again. Right. And now you're 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 out here, and you're sharing it and you're spreading it and, and, and you're now a world class speaker. Have you failed? Like, you know, the accident was, you know, this adversity, you know, that you had to deal with. But have you actually failed? Because it it feels like from the outside looking in, John's just this world class performer. And if he puts his mind to something, he's he's successful and everything, everything just kind of comes easy for him. Right. Has there been a moment where you've failed and you felt the self-doubt and hopelessness that comes from failure? And how were you able to move through that?
0: Yeah, there's there's multiple times I failed. <laughs> how much time do we have? I think, you know, in the, the mindset is maybe it's conditioning over time that you shorten the windows of the self-doubt. But yes, you go I go through those cycles as well. Even, you know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, with you know, having you you accepted a speaking engagement and like, oh my gosh, is this like can I actually really do this? You know, And you have the, you have these self-doubts. Two speaking examples of, of failure, right? The, the first is taking an engagement that I had no business taking. It was in the area lane of customer service <laughs> for a federal group. And I was just taking the, the gig, you know, cause I was trying to get some money and I tanked. It was horrible. I was up there for like 50 minutes and nothing was working because I was misaligned with this organization. And just like a comic up there, crashing and burning the entire time, not a very pleasant experience. So that thing taught me something about you know what to take and stay in your lane, right? That really dialed me in on there. So that's what I learned from that. And I also learned to develop relationships with people that had that expertise. So the next time I get a customer service call, I'm calling this other individual that I know can knock it out of the park. And then I look great because I recommended them. They look great because they can deliver a powerful presentation. And now we we keep the uh, everybody happy. You know, we get everybody happy instead of me tanking on something I have no business out there doing, right? So I think that's one. The second one is I was speaking for a group that was down in in Florida for a pharmaceutical company, and I was, again, it was one of those things that no one was was responding. Uh, so I thought that I had failed in that capacity for ten years. Like And I said, I will never do that ever again. I will always be prepared. I will always have my stuff together and I'll have the flow. And this is before, you know, I was really well-versed in professional speaking and understanding how to, you know, make the message really fit with the client and then bring in other things that if I can't do it, let's bring in another kind of group or something. So I, I was very young in my speaking career. Uh, and for 10 years, I said, I would never do something like that because these were high level professionals. These were, you know, quarter million dollar earners. You know, they were flying. They're, they're moving pretty fast. And then I get a call from the woman that had hired me 10 years later. And she says, uh, hey, I, have, I just switched organizations. I'm going to a new organization. Would you come and do that performance you did for us 10 years ago? I was like, what? <laughs> what that taught me was, and I, when I got enough courage to ask her, you know, I thought I totally tanked your event. And she said, no, those folks were so, li- they were listening to you so intently that you were so far ahead of them that they were just trying to keep up. So two, one, it taught me to slow down in the messaging, right? Let people breathe a little bit, because if you just say, "I was a I was a world class athlete," I had an injury, lost my artificial leg, wound up going to the Paralympic games in swimming, and then I won a silver medal in the long jump in Sydney, Australia. Let's talk about that, right? So then they're like, "Oh, wait a minute, what's going on?" So it was was too fast for one. So that was a a fail in that I didn't want to tell my story, uh, because I would use other things to tell it.
1: So John, for those who are. They're fired up, they're bought into your message, they're like, okay, I wanna take this to the next level. Uh, I wanna break through those limiting beliefs and, and tell myself the truth and cut through the fear. Can you recommend an action item, like something they can do in the next 24 to 48 hours to really start moving towards their goals?
0: There's several that you can do. One is I always look at the word resilience as this 10-letter word, and I equate them to 10 hurdles in a hurdle race. So I, I made a word for each one of those letters. One is resilience. In the resilience, you have uh, rituals, rhythms, and I've, I've said that a couple times a day. Rituals develop into rhythms, equate to a, a rise which equal our results. And then endurance is like the E, the first E for it. And then you have uh, S is, is story, but also in resilience is silence. So A, you can do an acronym like that off the word resilience and kind of tape that to your mirror or wherever your workstation is so that if you're getting off, you can put in your words, it doesn't have to be on the word resilience, but you can put in your words that help you get back on track. So that's an action step you can do. Uh, just kind of look over you know, synonyms or even sometimes antonyms of what triggers you to get back into the game. I think also looking at the word resilience is, so embedded in the word resilience, often we overlook is the word silence. So where do you go to find that place? So an action step number two, where's your silent spot that you go to do your best thinking? And set that up as a place you're going to go maybe, you know, once, twice, five times a week. At least you're going to get to that place so you can have your best thought. Turn the phone off and just really, you know, get into your own moment. The third thing I think is, you know, we talked about this journey from fear to freedom, that whole kind of journey where we start off the fear side and then we go to the the rebuild uh, side. We we looked at that and then we start and we saw this rebirth. So I have a whole chart or what would you call it like a infographic on that. If your listeners don't, if they want to go and get one, I can send it to you and you can send it out or they can just go to amputatefear.com and they can get that as well. And so you can look at where you think you are on the chart, on the graph, on that journey from fear to freedom. But you can also kind of say, I think somebody else might be on this chart too, and you can see where they are, and how can you either be a resource to help them with the jump they have to make in life, or that you are on the other side of the equation, who do you need to get to find to be a mentor for you to help you get across those chasms that are that are out there for you? So I think those are three action steps that people can actually do to make sure that they are moving forward with the content that they just they just heard today.
1: Excellent. Actionable stuff. For the listeners, I encourage you to not just hit stop on this at the end of this episode. Take action. John, thank you so much for making time to come on the show. For the listeners, go to johnregister.com. Go to amputatefear.com. You can buy his book, and I'll have uh, all of his social media linked in the action plans. So go to jimharsherjr.com slash action to get those. John, thank you so much for making time to come on the show.
0: Thanks, Jim, and always continue
1: to inspire your world. Likewise. Thanks for listening. If you want to apply these principles into your life, let's talk. You can see the limited spaces that are open on my calendar at jimharshajr.com slash apply, where you can sign up for a free one-time coaching call directly.